0: Good morning and thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Southern Remedy, Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we're going to spend uh, spend the next hour going through health headlines. So I get kind of health-related um, media headlines delivered to my inbox every day and sometimes there are ones that just catch my eye that I go, huh, what? what's that about and what's the science say behind that? And we'll dig through some of those today. If you have a question or a comment for us, our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464 or you can always email us fit at mpbonline.org. All right. The first segment of the show, we're going to really spend uh, giving you a little bit of an update and headlines surrounding uh, COVID and some of the things that I feel like you need to be aware of and um, that are affecting uh, the state of Mississippi right now. So the, the first is what is circulating right now? So I know that uh, prior to the pandemic, you might not have been super familiar with the Greek alphabet, unless you were in a fraternity or a sorority. And we have made our way through uh, through a good chunk of, of that alphabet. And now we start to see where we kind of are hanging out in Omicron uh, land, but there are some kind of sub variants of Omicron. So um, I want to talk a little bit about what Is circulating now here, of course, nationally, and then here in Mississippi, and what the symptomatology of that looks like, okay, so that you can make the best decision for yourself about whether you need to get tested, isolate, all of those different kinds of things. So um, with Omicron, um, there is kind of currently circulating, there is BA2, BA4, and BA5, okay. BA2 is the one that um, has been kind of predominant through like March, um, that that kind of time period, March, April, May. And now we're starting to see BA4 and BA5 start to, to creep up. So our health department here in Mississippi actually publishes um, variant information on their website. Um, and so when you go there, it, it there's a graph that shows you the uh, percentages of those different variants um, that are out there. Now it is current, the graph that is out there right now is current through July 8th, um, but has sequencing data as of June 22nd. And so you may be thinking, well, Those are not the same day as what's going on. Well, there's always going to be a little bit of a lag, right? Um, So the samples have been submitted up until July 8th, but it takes a little bit of time to run those samples, get them analyzed, those kinds of things. So when we look at our kind of June data for what's going on, about 55% is still that Omicron BA2. Um, about 17 and a half percent or so is BA4 and then BA5 is the 20 is about 28% somewhere along in there. So um, when you kind of clump them together, BA4 and BA5, they are about equal to what we've got going on with BA2. And if it follows the national trend, which it should, then we will become BA5 predominant. Um, very shortly, right? And so what that means for you is if you were um, infected earlier on, with original um, uh, original uh, COVID or even the Delta wave that took out a good chunk of folks in um, the the winter uh, of 2021, you can get reinfected with this BA four or BA five. Um, even if you had kind of original Omicron, you may still can get reinfected. So consider that when you're making decisions about how you interact in public, um, where you go, and the different kind of preventive measures that you um, employ. One of the um, biggest reasons I wanted to talk about this is the symptoms, while they're still respiratory in nature, uh, have changed a little bit. You know, when we had original Omicron and even through Delta, um, it was loss of taste and smell. That was kind of the thing that made it different than all the other respiratory illnesses out there. And With Omicron, and in particular um, Omicron 4 and Omicron 5, sore throat and like really bad sore throat um, is one of the kind of presenting symptoms that we're seeing with this. So I've, you know, I receive a lot of kind of calls into clinic or uh, messages through social media uh, with with folks that are kind of asking me, should I go get tested? Um, Or they'll say, well, I didn't go get tested because I didn't lose my taste and and smell. Um, I just had a sore throat you should go get tested because we do see that much more frequently um, with Omicron than we did with, uh, with Delta. We also look at something called um, testing positivity rates. So this is of all the people that go get tested what percentage of them are positive. So when we look at Mississippi as a whole, more than 25%. So they just kind of put you in in categories, and like 25% and greater is kind of the the biggest one they have. And so that's kind of where we are. Uh, It is broken out by um, county-level data that you can get as well. So I just picked one. I live in Rankin County, so I picked Rankin County. Um, Our positivity rate is about 36%. So of all the people that have some kind of – symptom going on that get tested about 36% of them are positive, which that may not sound like a lot. But in terms of disease spread and epidemiology, that's a big chunk of um, people that are positive. So if you've got a sniffle, a sore throat, those kinds of things, um, I really encourage you to get tested. If you can't get tested, at least kind of isolate and stay away from folks because you may have COVID. Kevin, you got a question for me. Do we have any information about how effective the vaccines that were rolled out are against these new variants? So when we talk about vaccine effectiveness, there are a couple of different kind of metrics you have to think about. Right. So there's does it prevent infection? Right. Does it prevent symptomatic infection or does it prevent hospitalizations and death? Right. And so. No vaccine is ever 100% effective at, at anything, right? We had, uh, with kind of original COVID, really still good protection against symptomatic infection with our vaccines. Omicron, in particular, the the 4 and 5, um, it tends to evade that coverage a little bit. So um, still does keep some folks from getting an infection and getting a symptomatic infection, but much less effective at that than originally where they're still holding up really really well is in the severity of the disease uh, and uh, the kind of outcomes that we don't want right hospitalizations and death so not as effective against preventing infection and even symptomatic infection but still holding up great in terms of um, hospitalizations and death right so that was a great question there. So a lot of people ask me, should I still get vaccinated? If you haven't been vaccinated, absolutely. If you're due for a booster, again, absolutely. Um, that is a great strategy to continue to help um, you know, help decrease hospitalizations and death. Um, another thing that you can, can look at over on the health department website and the CDC website is specific county level data, right? So what's going on in my county? right? And what does that mean for me or maybe a county that you're traveling to, you know, if you're going to visit family or those kinds of things. So you can put in your state, put in your county and it will show you what the transmission rates in that particular county are, right? And they give it like a green color, a yellow color and then I think it's probably supposed to be red but it looks like burnt orange to me. So those are the three um kind of groups that it will give you. And it will tell you whether it is low, moderate or high transmission in those particular areas. And that is a piece of information that's helpful to, to help you decide the type of protective measures that you want to employ. Right. So if um, it's in the you're in the green or low transmission area, then again, your lower chance of acquiring it there. So standard Kind of things, washing your hands, not bunching up against a whole bunch of folks, um, you know, getting up to date on your vaccinations, those kinds of things. If your county is in the yellow area, that is more. if you are high risk, meaning you would be likely to be hospitaliz- hospitalized or have a poor outcome, then that's really a conversation you need to be having with your health care provider about whether you should be going to that area or whether you should be masking when you're in that particular area. And then if your county is in the RNG red category, which indicates kind of high transmission is occurring right now, then in public, indoors, masks are recommended, right? And I don't see that happening a lot um, out in public. Uh, I have mine on again, that's a, a, a deci- personal decision for you to make. But think about your risk in terms of, you know, how, um, how well you may or may not do with COVID there. Uh, and consider if you're going to be indoors, um, in public, to, to wear that mask, pull that mask back out and um, wear it again. And like I said, that is on uh, the MSD8. MSDH websites, Mississippi State Department of Health website, and so you can look up your specific county and see what the transmission rates are in that particular um, that particular county, and let that kind of guide um, the protective measures that you put in place there. Um, in terms of how severe um, Omicron is, we are seeing hospitalization trends start to go up a little bit, um, but um, it's a ventil ventil to later usage is kind of staying flat almost. So that is good. But anytime we have more folks in the hospital, then sometimes ventilator usage and um, death rates kind of lag behind that number a little bit. So we are starting to see upward t- trends in uh, hospitalizations. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Southern Remedy, healthy and fit, on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Nurse Practitioner at UMMC, and today we're going through some health headlines that have come across my inbox over the last week or so. And I started out the show with an update, kind of on the the current status of COVID and the variant variants that are circulating currently, Um, I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about Paxlovid. So Paxlovid is an oral antiviral that is indicated for mild to moderate COVID um, disease in non-hospitalized patients. And it is Um, a wonderful addition to your treatment plan if you have tested positive for COVID-19 and you fall within um, kind of that group of of mild to moderate disease, not requiring hospitalization. And so I'm hopeful that uh, your healthcare provider will offer it to you. uh, But if not, ask for it, right? And so let's talk about Paxlovid um, and when it needs to be started and any kind of other things surrounding that that I think you should be aware of. So it is indicated for 12 and older, okay, um, with uh, a positive COVID test. It does not have to be a PCR test. It can be a rapid antigen test, okay? It can be one of the home tests. That's fine. Um, but it, you do need to start it within five days of symptom onset, so not five days from your test. Like if you were sick for a couple days before you tested um your kind of time clock to start it um was from when the symptoms first started okay and the reason for that is that's what we have efficacy data on right when you look at the the trial data for paxlovid when started within five days of symptom onset it's about 88 percent effective at preventing hospitalization and death right because again that's one of the things we're we're going for right um Really would like to prevent it from ever happening, but if we can't do that, then we want to prevent um, the the worse outcomes of hospitalizations and death. Um, so started within five days of symptom onset. It is twice a day for five days. Okay, that is the dosing on this, and it is two different medicines um at a time so it's two two different sets of pills twice a day for five days now i always get asked about side effects the uh, top side effect that we see with this is a bad taste in your mouth right um and some people describe it as a metallic taste um some people describe it as kind of like almost like a heartburn taste kind of like that um kind of chronic just sour stomach feeling kind of taste in your mouth um is, is the most common side effect we have there. What I do want you to be aware of is that there um, are a number of medication interactions with Paxlovid. Because of the way um, that it is kind of, kind of metabolized and processed in the liver, it can interact with other medicines that kind of go through that same pathway. And so there are kind of groups of medicines that are a, a no-go right? Like we wouldn't use Paxlovid with those medications, right? And so some that I think about are like um, anti-arrhythmic medications for your heart, right? Because we we wouldn't want to stop those to give you Paxlovid because it would cause a worse issue, right? Um, And then there are those that we may just have to adjust the dose on. Sometimes that's more like blood thinner medicines. Um, We'll have to decrease the dose of the blood thinner, that kind of thing. And then there are some that we can just kind of hold, right? And the one that I see most frequently and that I get asked most about is cholesterol medicine and in particular the statin class of medication which is incredibly common Um, that people are on that things like Lipitor and uh, Zocor, Crestor those kinds of things and so you can hold those medications meaning not take them for a couple of days and not usually not have an issue with that right now you would of course, never want to make adjustments to your medication without speaking with your healthcare provider and letting them help you do that. But um, if you're on a cholesterol medicine, especially, especially something like Lipitor, um, I wouldn't let that stop me from asking about Paxlovid uh, because there are dosing guidelines on that. Usually you just kind of stop taking it for the five days that you take the Paxlovid and then for an additional three days afterwards and then you can restart that medicine back, right? But that is still something that you need to talk with your individual healthcare provider about any adjustments to your treatment regimen. But ask for that Paxlovid um, if you test positive for for COVID uh, and have a real good conversation with your healthcare provider about um, whether that is appropriate for you to use um, in the treatment of your disease. All right, that kind of kind of ends my, my spiel on COVID-19 today, but if you have any questions about that or, or anything kind of health and wellness related, you can always give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. All right, moving on to the next headline. There are some good headlines out there, and they grab my attention and make me go, hmm, wonder what that is talking about. And the one that uh, grabbed my attention first was one that said, an avocado a day keeps the doctor away. And so that, it's you know, it's, it's catchy. Uh, it harkens back to that a whole apple a day situation. So I really wanted to know what... Um, what this article was talking about and whether there was any merit to it at all. So anytime I see a, a flashy um, uh, title or headline, I always want to know, is there a scientific study behind that thats um, that they're pulling their information from and putting that headline out? And so there actually uh, was one. There is a uh, A study that has been ongoing called the Habitual Diet and Avocado Trial, which I was not aware of, Um, but okay. Um, Once I find, you know, there is a study, then there are a couple things that I look at. And we've talked on the show before about kind of levels of evidence and whether things are um, good quality evidence or not. And there are several things that go into that. Study design is one of those things. Um, The number of people in the study. Um, You know, whether there are any um, kind of confounding type variables in there, all that is, you know, uh, epidemiology and public health type um, research that we we look at. And so whenever I, I find a study, the first thing I go is, well, you know, what was the design? You know, was it randomized, was there a control group, all these other kinds of things, or is just this just kind of um, observational, right, where we just kind of look at what happens to folks over time. And this one was um, split out into two groups, um, a group that ate one avocado a day, and then a group that did not, right? And in particular, um, what was looked at with the group that did not was they, they couldn't have more than two avocados a week. Right, If they had more than two avocados a week, then that would kind of start to muddy the water a little bit and not be able to kind of tell what was because of the avocado and what wasn't. And one of the things that they looked at was whether having that avocado decreased belly fat. Right, So when we're talking about cardiovascular health and heart health – One of the things that we look at in addition to blood pressure and cholesterol levels and blood sugar levels is how much kind of abdominal fat, abdominal tissue we have going on, right? Because a bigger waist circumference is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So if you've gone to your healthcare provider, you may have had your waist measured. You may not have, but you may have. And that's one of the kind of metrics that we're looking at is where the weight is being housed on your body, right? Because abdominal um, or waist circumference kind of points to more abdominal adiposity or fat in the abdominal region and may translate into uh, more fat kind of around the organs, right? Which is not a good thing, okay? So they wanted to see if having this uh, one avocado a day would make us have a smaller belly, right? And then they looked at some other things, like did it have an effect on cholesterol? Did it translate into overall better diet quality? Uh, And then what did it do to weight? Because we tend to think about avocados as calorically dense, even though they're a plant food, and we would call them a good fat, even though I kind of don't like the words good and bad when it it comes to food, uh, we would call it kind of a heart healthy fat, those kinds of things. It is a lot of calories and a relatively small amount of food. And so there was the notion that maybe these folks that have an avocado every day would gain a bunch of weight, right? And kind of be not a thing that we would want to do. So what did it actually look like? Well, they followed these folks for about six months. Um, and interestingly enough, there was no weight gain associated with the avocado a day, folks, right? So because even though they were having kind of this calorically dense food, they didn't gain any more weight than than the other group did. They also did not have a smaller waist circumference. So it, it did not do anything in terms of decreasing belly fat or anything like that. It did improve diet quality. Okay, So when we talk about diet quality, of course, you get more points uh, in terms of a healthier diet when you're having more fruits and vegetables and whole grains and fiber and lean proteins versus if you're having more processed foods, um, refined sugars, added fats, those kinds of things. So it did improve diet quality overall and a very, and I would say very, very modest, but still a reduction in cholesterol, about three points in total cholesterol and about two and a half points in LDL cholesterol, which is that bad cholesterol. So the take home to this, right, is if you enjoy avocado, having one a day is probably not going to cause significant weight gain. And it may help improve your blood uh, blood cholesterol, in particular, your bad cholesterol a little bit. I'm always very, very hesitant when we put kind of all our eggs in one basket on one particular type of food. Right. And that is very common in um, in the media, in health uh, in headlines to kind of get throw out a buzzword or a buzz food and say, you know, all of your problems can be fixed if you just have this particular food. And as much as I believe in the power of food as medicine and the ability to help um, prevent, treat and reverse illness through food, um, It's not about single solitary foods that we add into our uh, diet. It's about the diet pattern, right? So when we look at this particular study, it did improve diet quality overall. And so... What is to say that it's just the avocado that was helping with this or whether it was the overall improvement in diet quality and diet score. So I'm not telling you to run out, buy a bunch of avocados and start eating one every day. But if that is something you enjoy, um, then it certainly uh, could be a good addition to your diet. But knowing overall that it's about The dietary pattern that you choose to eat, not about the addition of single solitary foods um, or food groups into the way that you eat, right? It's about balance, it's about adding more plants. More fruits, more vegetables, more grains, less fried, less processed, um, less um, added sugars and added fats. And when I say added sugars and added fats, I mean they didn't come in the package um, when it was created, right? So avocados are a very fatty food, but they are not added fat, right? If we drizzled olive oil on the top of the avocado, then that would be added fat, right? Um, Fruit is sweet. It's got naturally occurring sugars in it, but that's not added sugar, right? If we drown it in um, uh, maple syrup, that's an added sugar on on top of that. So kind of focusing on the the nutrients that are already in the product without adding them to it is a better strategy for being able to enjoy um, a variety of plant foods. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson. President of New Perspectives, a fee only financial advising firm, and co host of Money Talks. For over ten years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at nine a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart devices podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC, and we've been going through some health headlines today. We wrapped up the uh, previous segment talking about um, avocados, and so if you didn't get to check that out, remember that you can search for Southern Remedy wherever you get your podcasts and check out all of the episode today. But now we're going to talk about reflux, or what we often call GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease. And it's got a bunch of other names that go along with it. Um, heartburn is kind of the colloquial term that you'll hear folks say, um, or just kind of sour stomach or ache, those kinds of things. Um, but what is happening with, um, with reflux is some of the acid is from your stomach is kind of splashing back up into the esophagus. So when you swallow food, right? There are there's two tubes, right? There's the esophagus where our food goes and then there's the trachea where air goes, okay? Food should not go in the trachea. That's a whole different set of problems that we're not going to talk about. But When it goes through the esophagus and travels down the esophagus to the stomach, there's a little muscle right there okay, called the lower esophageal sphincter. And with reflux, that muscle gets a little floppy, right? A little... Um, less snug of a closure. And that will cause things to back back up into the esophagus. And you'll get that burning type of pain or that discomfort kind of behind the behind the breastbone at the top of the stomach. And that can be worsened by a lot of different things, right? We see reflux a lot of times in little tiny babies, right? Just because their musculature is kind of immature. And so it it doesn't kind of stay as closed as we want it. And then as we get Get older, there are different things that can affect how tightly that muscle kind of closes down. Um, if we've got more weight again around our midsection, around our belly, and uh, we kind of sit down, that belly kind of presses up on that muscle, and will make it kind of pop open. Right? That's why weight loss is often recommended for folks who are um, struggling with uh, GERD. Um, different foods and different spices can also do that. Caffeine can make that muscle a little bit floppier as well. So that's why sometimes we'll recommend backing off of caffeine consumption um, when you have uh, reflux, uh, the carbonation in soda, again, it's adding more, more air to your belly and so pressing more on that muscle. And so that may make it pop open a little bit. Um, and, and some other different things, um, spicy foods can sometimes do it. Peppermint uh, is another one that can cause some uh, relaxation of that muscle. And then when you lay down, especially if you've eaten a big meal and you lay down, think about gravity what's what's in your belly kind of flops up toward the the that muscle and again puts more pressure on it so again that's why the advice usually is don't have a big meal and go straight to bed right Um, if you're having um, indigestion heartburn reflux type stuff you know sit up for 30 minutes to an hour after you eat to kind of help gravity help that food move on through your GI tract or even sleep kind of elevated if you've got severe significant reflux with that. Um, I've talked about a wedge pillow on the show before um, because it does wonders for folks who snore and have sleep apnea issues, but it's also a great kind of relatively cheap thing to add into your your treatment algorithm, so to speak, for reflux. It looks like a piece of like a wedge of cheese. It's got a a skinny end and then a fatter end on it. And that skinny end kind of goes underneath your shoulder blades and the kind of mid back. And that elevates the top part of your body to again, take pressure off of that muscle. You can also use things like bed risers that are little blocks that you would put underneath the feet of the head of the bed to kind of elevate the whole bed up. That works best for folks who are stomach sleepers, right? If you're a stomach sleeper and I tried to put you on a wedge, you would be real mad at me because you would be kind of crunked over backwards and that would not be a good spot um, to put you in. So those are kind of all standard of care um, treatments for folks with reflux, in addition to medications, right? Whether that be something like a pepsid or whether that be something like a Prilosec or a Nexium, those kinds of things, right? So those are H2 blockers and uh, PPIs, right? Those are kind of the two big classes. And then just your your Tums, uh, Roll Aid type of situation that just kind of seeks to neutralize that acid that you've got going on in your belly. So this particular headline that came across said diaphragmatic breathing helps reduce GERD symptoms and improve quality of life. Well, if you've listened to the show, you know, I'm a big believer in what I call abdominal deep breathing. We've talked about it several times as it relates to um, anxiety and stress management and using that as a way to uh, relax and work on um, controlling the sensations that we have when we become anxious or stressed. So it's kind of the same technique. Technique that we're talking about here. So when I saw it, I thought, "Oh yeah, let's look at this and see what it really, um, really is talking about." And so again, I always go, "Is this high quality evidence?" Right. Well, it was a randomized control trial, which is the kind of top level of evidence. So yay! But it was a really small sample size, so only about ninety six folks. And so that limits what we call generalizability, right? Meaning if we only have a small number of people that we've tested something out on, we can't say for sure that it works on a big number of folks, right? On everybody, right? So that's a limitation of this particular study. But then we also look at what are the risks and benefits, right? And so here we're talking about breathing. Breathing is very important, right? And so there's very little risk of making someone worse by helping them breathe better. OK, so uh, when we look at this, it's um, they broke folks into to two different groups. Right. One and both. All of these were folks with reflux. OK, so with GERD broke them down into these two groups. One just got routine care. Right. So that's all the things that I talked about initially, you know, changing uh, nutrition, things that we're doing, medicines that were on positioning devices, all of those different kinds of things. So just standard of care. And then the other group got that same standard of care, and four weeks of diaphragmatic breathing training, okay, or abdominal deep breathing training. okay. And so what did that look like? Well, it looked like 30 minute training sessions, Okay, that we did that they did with folks teaching them how to do abdominal deep breathing or diaphragmatic breathing in three different positions, laying down, sitting up and standing. OK, so that whatever position your body was in, you were trained in how to do this type of breathing activity. Right. Um, they also developed a home exercise program. Right. Related to this particular exercise, the exercise of abdominal deep breathing, where they asked people to do 30 breaths this way within a five-minute span, three times a day, right? So that looks just like a prescription that we would write for a medication, right? It's abdominal deep breathing, 30 breaths times five minutes, three times a day, right? And so they um, you know, did this with this these groups um, for four weeks, and they looked at what we call symptom frequency scores, so how often did they have the sensation of heartburn or reflux, how severe was it and then their quality of life right because if you've got severe um, frequent significant pain from GERD that impacts your quality of life and just how well you feel living right so they looked at those three things and both groups got better especially in terms of frequency and severity which makes sense right because both both of them were getting standard of care, right? Both of them got medicines and nutritional changes and all those kinds of things. The only thing that was different was the deep breathing exercises, okay? And the group that got those got significantly more better in terms of the frequency of reflux, the severity of reflux, and an improvement in their quality of life, right? So if you're listening and you've got reflux and you're looking for something extra to add to that, considering abdominal deep breathing as a adjuvant to what you're already doing is a good idea, right? So how do we do that, right? Get in a comfortable position. If you're driving in the car, now is not the time to practice this, Okay, But if you are home, it's a great time to practice it, right? You can do it laying down. You can, I usually recommend when you're learning how to do this and practicing, that you kind of start in a reclined type position. It's just easier to get your belly moving that way. And you put one hand on your belly and one hand on your chest and take a breath, okay? Just a breath like you would normally do and see which one moves the hand on your chest or the hand on your belly, right? And if it is not the hand on the belly, We've got some some work to do. Right. And this is kind of a form of of biofeedback. Right. Where I'm asking you to pay attention to what muscles you feel that you're using to breathe. Right. And so you just keep practicing until you get the belly hand to go up instead of the chest hand. okay? And you practice that for about five minutes. Three times a day, you can set a little reminder on your watch or on your phone to kind of ding at you to remind you to go ahead and practice um, your abdominal deep breathing. So not only is it great for stress reduction and anxiety, um, it is looking like it is helpful for folks that are dealing with um, reflux in terms of the frequency, the severity and the overall impact on quality of life. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. To Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at UMMC. And today we've been talking about some health headlines that have made their way into my inbox over the past week or so. And before the break, we were talking about abdominal deep breathing and how, you know, we've talked about it on the show before in terms of helping with stress reduction and anxiety, but how this um, small study showed that it could be be useful in uh, reflux. And over the break, uh, Kevin was asking me about when you have a small study like that, what does that mean in terms of moving forward? And so usually when you have a small study that's that's well done, right, meaning um, the design of the study was well, uh, well thought out and well planned out, um, but the number of people enrolled is just small, that would encourage um, other researchers to replicate that type of study in a larger population of people. Um, we see that sometimes Sometimes when the research maybe is done in a different country um, and we want to see, will it work in Americans? This happens a lot when we're uh, looking at nutritional strategies and those types of things, because the lifestyle in a European country is is different than the lifestyle here in America. So we want to see, you know, if something that worked over there may work over here. So yes, um, with the study that we were talking about before, which just had to do with uh, relaxing breathing techniques, that is a a low risk intervention added to folks. It's not uh, likely to harm folks. So uh, your healthcare provider may feel more comfortable recommending that type of modality to you versus a medicine that only had 96 people in a study we would never r- kind of recommend that particular medicine so to speak because it just hadn't been studied in a big enough group of folks all right our kind of last headline that we're going to talk about the headline was walking 10,000 steps lowers death risk in diabetes patients okay that one caught my eye because uh, we've talked about on the show before that 10,000 steps Uh, number has is largely a a marketing thing um, that there wasn't a whole lot of science behind um, that the choice of 10,000 steps and that when we look at different age groups of folks um, and different outcomes that we're looking at it may not be 10,000 that we need to be shooting for so that one caught my eye when I went to the actual study right the actual study name is Optimal number of steps per day to prevent all cause mortality in people with prediabetes and diabetes. So you can see that, that the headline is different than what the actual study was looking at, right? So the, the study is just trying to capture what they feel like is the best number, but the headline was attention grabbing with kind of this 10,000 steps is what we need to, to do. So does that hold up when we look at it? Well, it's a pretty good size. Um, Study about 1,700 Americans, okay, so much more than 96, right, and it's long, right, so this was um, over the course of nine years, and it's not like they enrolled 1,700 folks for nine years. We collect um, nationally a lot of health data on folks. There's kind of optional um, studies that you can be enrolled in, where you submit uh, things like your weight and your blood pressure and the types of foods that you eat and all these kinds of things into a large database that we can then pull information from and start to look at things. And this was one of those. And so it pulled accelerometer data, which is kind of like a step counter but a little bit fancier, um, looking at at movement. And so they were kind of seeking to determine how many steps were associated with lower deaths in this group, okay? And I'll say associated, not causative, right? We can't say that just because you walked this number of steps, you will not die, okay? That's just not how it works. Um, So, A couple of the limitations of this study, though, is a good size, right, 1,700, but the vast majority of them were people with prediabetes, right? So prediabetes means your blood sugar is a little bit higher than we would like for it to be, but doesn't meet kind of diagnostic criteria for diabetes, for type 2 diabetes. And so um, in that prediabetes range, that's a perfect time to really build in some lifestyle change and some lifestyle modification to prevent the development of uh, type 2 diabetes so the majority of these folks were in that pre-diabetic range and the majority were men okay so over 50 percent in each uh, in the diabetic group and in the pre-diabetes group were men okay so i just kind of say that to mean that again it might not be as generalizable to every single person because more of the people in the group were men than women what it did look like was um, that the average step count of the folks in the diabetes group was about 6,300 steps a day. And in the pre-diabetic group were about 8,500 steps a day. Okay. So the group in the pre-diabetes group did walk a little bit more. Um, And as close as they the closer they got to 10,000 steps the lower the death rates from all causes were okay so that's kind of where this headline number of 10,000 came out right what i want you to think about is that the average american walks between 3 and 4,000 steps a day okay Nowhere near any of these numbers and way far away from 10,000. So if you're sitting out there and going, well, there's no way I can walk 10,000 steps a day. What's the point? There's always a point, right? Any movement is beneficial, right? And we've talked about um, a study on the show before that looked at women um, and women in kind of middle um, middle age to early senior years and what their kind of optimal number is. And it's somewhere around 7,500 steps um, to reduce cardiac mortality, right? So we don't have to be perfect. We just got to make progress. So if it's adding a hundred steps a day, a week at a time, That's going to transfer into benefit, right? Because this study didn't say they had to get 10,000 steps. It said the closer they got to 10,000 steps, the lower their risk of mortality was, right? So that just means progress, not perfection. So if you're looking to get started, one, I usually recommend going early in the morning, or late in the evening when it's not so dang hot because it's super hot outside right now, right? Making sure you're adequately hydrated as well, right? And just setting a timer for a couple of minutes, right? Maybe it's two minutes. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's 10 minutes if you're used to being up and around. Only you will know what that kind of optimal start time is for you. But right now, it's not about the number of steps we get. It's about building the habit of movement and making sure that we're moving intentionally every single day because that's what builds healthy habits that translate into healthy lifestyle change that translates into lower risk of disease and death. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners. So if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org.